This is episode 31 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture. Welcome to episode 31 of Ethics and Culture Cast. I'm Ken Hellenius, the communications specialist at the DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture at the University of Notre Dame. In this episode, we chat with Professor Gabriel Reynolds, a professor in the World Religions and World Church program in Notre Dame's Department of Theology. He is an expert in Quranic studies and Muslim-Christian relations, and a member of the Center's Faculty Advisory Committee. Let's sit down with Professor Reynolds for this fascinating conversation. Gabriel Reynolds, thank you very much for coming to be with us. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, Where did you study? Where do you come from? How did you get to Notre Dame? These sorts of things. Right. So my undergraduate studies were at Columbia University in in New York City. the city city of New York. Exactly. And um, that's where I began studying Arabic and the Middle East generally. I began traveling over the summers to different countries in the Middle East. Um, Before that, I was raised in Connecticut by um, a family that was of mixed heritage. And part of that heritage was um, Middle Eastern. So my mother is from a Syrian family. She was actually raised in Boston, but if you go back far enough, you get to Damascus, Syria. Um, So um, that's part of the story of my sort of intellectual curiosity about the Middle East. But anyway, I studied at at Columbia, studied Middle Eastern studies, went on to do graduate work at Yale University, and um, there I really focused on religion, so on Islam in particular, and especially Islamic thought about Christianity And I finished my Ph.D. in 2003 and was lucky enough to be hired by Notre Dame, and I've been here ever since. Wow. So this is your kind of first professional job. First and only job. And only job. That's good. Yeah. What uh, what do you teach? So my my teaching stretches from the introduction to theology class here at Notre Dame, which is known as Foundations of Theology. Um, So that's mostly with freshmen and all the way up to Ph.D. seminars. Um, So that first course, Foundations of Theology, is a challenge because it's within the core curriculum of Notre Dame, which, of course, is rooted in the Catholic mission of the university. So in that that course, we focus principally on the Bible, also early church thought, so the the early councils and things like that. So that's a bit of a stretch for me because I'm really trained as an Islamicist, although I am a Catholic. Um, And then most of my other courses engage with uh, Muslim-Christian relations or Islamic studies in some way. I teach two different courses that have to do with dialogue between Muslims and Christians, one for undergraduates, one for uh, master's students. Mm -hmm. I teach a course on the Quran and the Bible, which I'm teaching this semester, which is really closely related to my research over the past several years, so I feel a little more comfortable (laughs) there. And then um, I've done a couple of different courses um, on the Ph.D. level, um, but the, the one that I teach most regularly is a really critical introduction to scholarly debates around the origin of Islam. Mm-hmm. So that's called Islamic origins. And then one further class that I've taught at Notre Dame Center in Jerusalem, it's called Tantur, is on the Holy Land, and in particular, um, Muslim and Christian um, experiences, perspectives on the Holy Land through the centuries. Yeah. 
Well, and you kindly helped prepare our student pilgrims. You gave us a, a kind of a very crash course introduction to uh, our pilgrims uh, who made the trip to the Holy Land here for spring break. And I was happy to sit in on that as well. Um, how how many times have you been to the Holy Land and to Jerusalem? Yeah, I've I've lost count. Not because <laughs> <laughs> I've been there dozens of times, right. but it's been seven, eight, or, or nine times. I went for the first time. It was very memorable in 1993. I was studying in Jordan, studying Arabic for the summer, mm-hmm. and um, I took a combination of, of of buses and shared taxis and got from Amman, you know, over the Jordan River and crossed into into the Holy Land and then um, went up to, um, to visit friends in Bethlehem and went to the Holy Sepulchre for the first time. Mm-hmm. So that was very memorable. And then since coming to Notre Dame, I've been back to do, I think I've taught three or four different intensive courses in the Holy Land. So it's been a place that's been really formative for, for my thinking about interreligious relations. Yeah. Um, what is the importance of Jerusalem for m- Muslims? I mean, it's kind of obvious that that's where Christ died, you know, and obviously it's the home of the temple for, for the Jewish people. It's where Jesus lived in, in that area and where he had his passion. What's the importance for Islam? Right. That's a really good question. It's important to emphasize that Jerusalem is a sacred city for Muslims as well. Mm-hmm. Of course, observers might have noticed the conflict over places like the Temple Mount, which for Muslims is called the Haram al-Sharif. It's where that building with the golden dome sits, known as the Dome of the Rock. So it, it is indeed important, and it's principally connected to a story which takes place during the lifetime of the Prophet Muhammad. So Muhammad lives um, from 570 to 632. He's called to prophethood in 610. And for his first about 12 years of his preaching, of his prophetic career, he's in the city of Mecca. And Islamic tradition tells us that at, at some point during his preaching in Mecca, a miraculous occurrence took place by which he was transported from the city of Mecca all the way to Jerusalem in a miraculous way. Um, some stories speak of a, a beast, some sort of horse-like um, animal that had wings. It even gets a name. It's Burak. And so he travels to Jerusalem on this animal. He sort of settles on what is now the Temple Mount. And from the spot where eventually Muslims would build the Dome of the Rock, um, and, and, and indeed, as one might guess, from a rock on that spot, he ascends into heaven. And he, um, he there meets all of the uh, or many of the earlier prophets and even has a sort of beatific vision, a sort of encounter with God. So that sort of rendered that spot sacred um, to Muslims. It's the site of, of Muhammad's ascension to heaven. But it's also worth adding just very briefly that Muslims also generally embrace the stories we know from the Bible about earlier prophets. And so um, they, um, they recognize for that reason, too, that the Holy Land in Jerusalem in particular is sacred. Well, now, you've made reference there to there's um, Islamic traditions and then there's the sacred text itself, the Quran. Your newest book is The Quran and the Bible, Text and Commentary. It's a master kind of reference work that brings together both the text of the Quran and parallel texts from outside Quranic tradition like the Bible and extra-biblical texts. Um, this sort of work shows a mastery of not just the, the sacred text itself, the, the Quran, but also so much other reading. Uh, that you can read through and draw these parallels. How do you assemble a work like this? 
Right. So um, with a lot of yeah, with a lot of help from friends, first of all, and um, it took a long time. So this is a project I was working on for about five years, and um, right. I mean, in some ways, it's a very simple book because it simply presents an English translation of the Quran. It's not my translation. It's done by a Muslim scholar named Ali Kuli Karai. So I, um, with his permission, we, we used his translation. And then what I added basically is I assembled together um, intertext, so texts from, as you mentioned, the Bible and parabiblical tradition, which are related to particular passages of the, of the Quran. So I sort of selected those, put them in the right places, and then added the commentary which shows how the Quran is connected to these these biblical texts. But I, I would add, you know, um, it, I was able to advance with this project principally because I've had fruitful relationships with scholars throughout the world um, on um, who also work on the Quran and the relationship between the Quran and the Bible. I've been very active with a group called the International Quranic Studies Association and, um, you know, tried to keep up with all of the writings in the field and sent the book out when it was in manuscript form to many, many colleagues. I mean, part of the problem, the reason why you need sort of a team to work on this um, sort of project is um, the Quran is, is not in conversation with the canonical Bible. So um, it's not as though Muhammad or whoever the author of the Quran was, you know, sat down on a desk opened the Bible, started reading through it, and copying down important passages into the Quran. That's definitely not what happened. Okay. Um, instead, we have the whole world of late antiquity. You know, again, Muhammad is living in, in the, or is working in the early 7th century, and um, this is a time where all sorts of um, biblical traditions are circulating. But in Arabia, the Bible itself had not yet been translated into Arabic. Oh, wow, okay. So if you're going to access the Bible through these oral traditions— and um, you, you may not distinguish between what is canonical, like what is actually in the Bible, mm-hmm. and what is um, parabiblical, what are traditions that have sort of built up through the centuries to add to biblical data. And so, um, and, and all of that information circulates in a number of different languages, right? They're, they're, um, the, the principal language in the Middle East spoken by Christians and Jews is some form of Aramaic. Mm-hmm. But there are actually different forms for Christians and Jews. And then um, there's Greek, which is, thanks to Alexander the Great, had been around for centuries and was sort of a layer on top sort of for um, official purposes. Um, even Latin had a certain role. But then there are, um, there are languages that we may not know so well, especially Ethiopic, which enters into Arabia from the south, not from the north. So there's a complicated array of languages, and you really need help to get a handle on the whole situation. Sure, sure. And these are not languages that you're necessarily conversant in. I can handle. I can handle a couple of them. A couple of yeah, them. yeah, but not all of them. Um, you make reference there to participating in kind of Muslim-Christian dialogue too. Um, I'm kind of interested. What's the state of Muslim-Christian dialogue these days? So it's um, it's sort of a it's a mixed it's a mixed picture. Um, in some ways, we're living in a time where um, there's more connection, more conversation, more discussion, more dialogue between people of faith. And, um, you know, the Holy Father, Pope Francis, has been particularly active um, in recent months. Um, he has um, been to Abu Dhabi um, in, the, in the Gulf, um, and there actually signed a document. Um, on hu- so-called the human fraternity document mm-hmm. with the grand imam of the most important Sunni Muslim institution, which is known as Al-Azhar, 
which is actually in Cairo. So they sort of met together in, the, in, in, in Abu Dhabi. He's also been to Morocco. So there, there's lots that's um, going on, and the Catholic Church in particular is engaged in, in, in a, or at a level which it's never been engaged in before in dialogue with Muslims. Um, you know, I don't know how, how far we want to go there, but yeah. so, some people feel that um, whereas, you know, for John Paul II and Benedict, there was a particular commitment to advancing the conversation with Jews and rectifying some of the historical wrongs that had taken place there, that um, Pope Francis really saw had a, has a particular calling towards dialogue with Muslims. Anyway, so all that is good, and there's lots, there's lots that's going on, although there's a little bit of controversy there as well. Um, but on the other hand, dialogue is, is a big challenge, and in part because the two communities, the Christian community and the Muslim community, have so many um, divisions within themselves mm-hmm. that um, the question is, who's actually speaking with whom? And what sort of effect does that finally have on relations sort of on the ground between Muslims and Christians? Interesting. Well, let's um, go back a bit to your book because I want to actually maybe draw some examples. The Quran is not um, in dialogue with the biblical text in, in the way that, for for example, perhaps the Book of Mormon would have been, you right. know, where, he, where Joseph Smith had the, the Bible with him. Right. Kind of um, but many biblical characters— do appear in the Quran. Um, what would be an example of, of somebody from the Bible who makes an appearance in the Quran? Right. I mean, why don't we start with Jesus? That's the, <laughs> there you go. Just All go right. to the, I like the, it. In some ways, the, the, central, the central figure for, um, for Muslims, as of course he is for, for Christians. Sure. Um, and I say cent- central for Muslims because he, he is the prophet who leads to Muhammad. He is for, for Islamic faith, right? He's the last prophet before Muhammad. Okay. He predicts the coming of Muhammad. Um, he he brings a scripture as Muhammad does, so um, he's he's very important um, to the Quran. He's only mentioned by name twenty five times, but the way he's mentioned is really important. In part because we see Christian terminology adopted by the Quran and adapted to a new theological framework. So, for example, in Quran chapter four, verse one seventy one, the Quran, which is generally articulated in the voice of God himself, mm-hmm. it declares about Jesus that he is a word which God has cast into Mary, and he is a spirit which comes from him. So it's a word and a spirit. This is, this is very intriguing language. Sure. But um, it, that, that same verse also speaks to Christians and says, do not say three, simply believe in God and his messengers. So it seems to be, even while it's adopting Christian language, it's adapting it to this new theological framework, which is even polemical. It's even meant to refute Christianity. Um, so that's sort of on the theology. But we also have a lot of allusions to Christian stories. So some of the miracles that um, Christians may know from the New Testament, such as Jesus healing lepers or healing the blind or even raising the dead, are mentioned in the Quran. Um, however, when they're mentioned, most often the Quran usually adds, he did this by the permission of God. Okay. So not by his own power, right. by God's power. Right. So, um, and then we have other, other stories that we know from what Christians might consider apocryphal gospels. For example, there's a story in the Quran that um, Jesus creates a bird from clay. He breathes into it and it comes to life. And um, this is in the original 
Christian context that we know it from, which is from the the infancy Gospels of Christ, um, it's meant to show the creative power of Christ, right? As God himself created Adam from clay and breathed into him the breath of life, so Jesus, who is God incarnate, does the same thing with this little bird, right? Um, But in the Islamic context or in the Quranic context, that little phrase is added, by the permission of God. Okay. So, so that it's no longer meant to redound to his divinity, right. but simply as a miracle. It's just a, it's a really cool miracle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you mentioned Mary is named as well. Yes. And so, um, what's her role in in the Quran as well? Right. So, so Mary is um, is very important to the Quran. Um, some people have noted that there's more material on Mary in the Quran than there is in the New Testament. That's true. And in fact, there's also a lot of convergence between Christian doctrine on Mary and what the Quran says about Mary. For example, um, the, the Quran accepts the virgin birth of Christ. It may even accept the immaculate conception of Mary because there's a verse in chapter 3 of the Quran which actually has the mother of Mary, mother of Jesus, whom Christians know by tradition as St. Anne, she dedicates that which is in her womb to God from, and asks protection from Satan, which to some observers is an allusion to Mary being conceived without sin, somehow having a sort of protection around her. In any case, the, the virgin birth of Christ is emphatically accepted and taught by the Quran. And um, so we have the story of the angel visiting her, Quran chapter 3, verse 45. But again, in Quran chapter 19, which incidentally is a chapter which is named simply Mary, speak of the Annunciation and the the power of God to create um, Jesus in her womb in a miraculous um, way. And so in, in, in that way, Mary is sort of a figure that can bring Muslims and Christians together. Wow. What are some of the things that your students find most interesting when they take uh, your, your course on the Quran and the Bible? I think p- part of the, the fascination for, for students in um, getting to know the, the Quran is how biblical the text is. You know, some people might think of the Quran as this scripture coming from the desert of Arabia, maybe from a pagan context, maybe only distantly related to Judaism and Christianity. But when you begin to read the text, it's just it's filled not only with biblical characters, but also with biblical language and even, for example, biblical cosmology, its, it's fundamental vision of the world. So, I mean, just to return for a moment to the, the biblical characters, yeah. it's not only Mary and Jesus, but um, from, from Adam, so we have the story of um, the creation of Adam and his fall, although Muslims wouldn't really accept the theological notion of a fall or original sin, but you still have a story of a fall. Actually, in the Quran, it's literally a fall because the garden is imagined to be in some celestial realm above the inhabited world. Mm-hmm. So Adam, after being tempted by Satan, um, he, he and, and Eve, although she's not named, um, and Satan, they all fall down from this celestial garden to the earth. So, I mean, but characters from, from Adam and Noah, we have the flood story, Abraham, Moses is very important. He's named more than any other character in the Quran onto um, not only Jesus and Mary, but also Zechariah and John the Baptist. They're all in the Quran. Wow. And I, I just add to that, that the, the very notion 
that is at the heart of the Quran, which is, is prophetology. The idea that God chooses one man, and in the Quran it always seems to be men and not women, so it's not just gender-specific in order to be right. gender-specific. Right, yeah. right. The, the idea that God would choose one man, give him a scripture, which he would deliver to the people, and that would be the medium of divine communication and ultimately of salvation. Because salvation in Islam is your fidelity to the prophetic revelation. So that whole vision, that's a biblical idea. It's, it doesn't reflect other religious systems. It reflects notions of the great prophets of the, of the Hebrew scriptures and even Christian ideas of prophecy in, in the New Testament. Kind of building on that, is there an idea of progressive revelation and the Quran is the, then the pinnacle and there is no more? So definitely to, to the latter part of that, Ken, yeah, that's, that's really important to emphasize. For Muslims, the Quran is the final revelation. There can be no prophet after Muhammad. Okay. And every once in a while throughout the history of Islam, there have been figures who have appeared and claimed to be prophets, and it's caused big trouble. So okay. <laughs> it's actually a movement some of your listeners may be familiar with known as Baha'ism, yes. so the Baha'i faith. Yeah. That emerges in the 19th century in Iran from a figure, Baha'u'llah, who claimed to be a prophet. And Baha'is are, they've thrived in the West, but not in the Islamic world where they've been harshly persecuted. So, but in terms of pro- progressive revelation, that, that's an interesting question, which scholars really debate, because in some ways, a contrast between the Bible, at least as it's read by the church, and the Quran, is the stories of the prophets in the Quran seem to be more cyclical. That is, we seem to have um, type and prototype. So the story that we have, for example, about Noah or about Lot, even about Moses and maybe about Jesus, although there's a little more um, texture to the Jesus material in the Quran, they, they all seem to anticipate the story of Muhammad himself. And some scholars would go so far as to say the Quran is, as Islam is monotheistic, the Quran is monoprophetic. You have all these different names of prophets, but they're really prototypes of Muhammad. We, we really only have one prophetic figure in the Quran. I'm not sure if that really makes sense. No, but, it does. Uh, you know. In the same sense that we say, you know, the rock was Christ, that we read, like, for example, in the letter to the Hebrews, drawing on this idea of the types of the Old Testament pointing to Christ. Right, exactly. So same kind of a parallel yeah. idea. Yeah, Interesting. Yeah. Well, this is absolutely fascinating. Where... Could a general reader get an introduction to Islam? So at the risk of self-promotion, <laughs> right. um, I would start with, um, with a book that, um, that I wrote called The Emergence of Islam, which is published with Fortress Press, okay. which is a, a good place to start, I think. And then if people are particularly interested in the Quran and the Bible, this book by Yale University Press, Quran and the Bible, um, would be good as well. I think there are other um, important resources out there. Andrew Rippon has written a good introductory book. Um, For a a Muslim perspective, there are a couple of different places um, one could go. Um, I would probably start with the writing of uh, Mustafa Akil, who appeared at Notre Dame in in the fall, this past fall. He was at Notre Dame. But he wrote a very interesting book called Islam Without Extremes, which offers um, the perspective of a Muslim committed to notions of religious liberty, um, uh, and along with a general introduction to Islam. Excellent. 
Well, one thing I didn't ask you, and, and maybe we'll end with this, is what's your relationship to the Center for Ethics and Culture? Right. Well, I should say the DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture. Indeed. Yeah. First of all, I'm a big fan. <laughs> so I'm really grateful for all of the activities and the presence of, of the center. Um, and it's um, not, not simply its presence, but it has sort of um, an effect um, that spreads throughout, throughout the campus among our undergraduate students who are affiliated with the university. Um, the great conference that takes place in the fall, which is an annual event on everyone's um, calendar. Um, so, but in fact, um, I'm a faculty affiliate and have been involved um, in different pro-life activities that the center um, sponsors and um, do my best to get to the March for Life yeah. um, in, uh, in January each year. And um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm very grateful for the work of the center and delighted to, to be able to speak with you as well. Awesome. Well, Gabriel Reynolds, thank you kindly for coming to be with us. Thank you. Thank you to Professor Gabriel Reynolds for the excellent conversation. Find links to his book and his other recommended texts for interested readers in the show notes. Subscribe to Ethics and Culture Cast so that you can always get the latest episodes by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu slash podcast. We would love your feedback. Please give us a review wherever you get your podcasts and email your suggestions to cecpodcast at nd.edu. Our theme music is I Don't Know by Grapes, licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution License. We'll see you next time on Ethics and Culture Cast. Until then, make good decisions.